welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. This is Rick Morton sitting in for Herbie Newell. Well, I'm not actually sitting in with Herbie Newell. I'm kind of sitting with Herbie Newell because we're going to turn the tables a little bit today. And uh, and I will be interviewing Herbie today, talking about his book, Image Bearers. Um, you guys, that those of you that listen to the podcast are uh, well acquainted with Herbie and his leadership here at Lifeline and, uh, and, and just all of the ways that he um, pours into and speaks into um, the pro-life community and into um, particularly the care of orphan and vulnerable children and vulnerable families. Um, great friend. And I, I'm just really looking forward to, uh, to sitting down with him for a few minutes and talking about uh, what I think is a, is a terribly important work in, in the book Image Bearers. So Herbie, welcome. Thanks, Dr. Rick. I appreciate you for allowing me to be on the podcast today. We're, we're having a lot of fun with the fact that we've switched seats today, but we really haven't even switched seats. We're sitting in the same place we always would be if we were doing this. And um, But, you know, Herbie, about, um, I guess, over a year ago now, uh, we sat down and had a conversation about um, really the opportunity that existed to speak into the pro-life community about a, a whole life pro-life ethic and about how um, there really has seemed to be a gap in, in that conversation. And, and so I'd, I'd just be curious for, as we begin, just for you to talk a little bit about, as you have, have written image bearers to speak into that need, um, what is a whole life pro-life ethic? Yeah, well, and I think we've talked about it, and that was one of the reasons that you even, I think, leaned on me. <laughs> in order to to kind of put some of these things on paper. And interestingly enough, I think even when you and I first kind of thought about this, we were thinking maybe even putting a couple of mini series of books together. And I guess like sometimes I am on our Bible studies or or even in teaching and preaching, I get a little long winded. And so it ended up being a little bit longer than we had initially thought. But I think what we were even talking about, because through initiatives at Lifeline, we end up doing initiatives in November for Orphan Sunday. And then we turn around two months later and we're doing initiatives for Sanctity of Human Life. And the Lord has allowed us opportunities to speak into both. And yet the emphasis on both seems to be looking at from the same spot in different directions. One is looking back at, we've just got to get this baby born. And the other is saying, we've got these children that aren't flourishing, that are in institutions or living on the streets are vulnerable and we've got to do something about them. And I, and I, and I know for you and I, as, as we looked at that, we realized that so many times the church actually is more interested on sanctity of human life, wants to talk more about Roe v. Wade and really even the thought is, let's just get the baby born. But yet that's where they leave off once this baby is born. And I think any parent knows that half the journey is the baby being born, right? The rest of it is once the baby's in your home and you're caring for them and loving on them and, and intentionally wrapping your lives around them. And so it was really, we felt that the Lord needed us to write out kind of this clarion call to say, we don't need to separate care for the vulnerable child, the vulnerable family, the single mom 
from our pro-life ethic on Sunday morning in January when we're talking about the sanctity of human life. And, and I guess a whole life pro-life ethic, even in where I feel like the Lord led us through image bearers is that the battle for Roe v. Wade doesn't start in the courtrooms. It doesn't start in crisis pregnancy centers. It doesn't start with intentionally wrapping around women who are pregnant. It starts with caring for single moms. It starts with caring for orphans. It starts with caring for the foster children. It starts for caring for refugees. It starts to show the world that we truly value life that's born so that then we can say this, we have such value for life that is born and that's why we care for life that isn't born because there's something special and unique because all life has been knitted together by God, not just to be born from the womb, but to live a life of flourishing once they are born. And I think, you know, it, I mean, you alluded to it that, that a lot of this book, quite honestly, has been born over many years and a lot of conversations and a lot of experience. I mean, you've been doing this for 17 years now um, at the helm of Lifeline and, and, and steering this, you know, this ministry. And, and I think time and longevity in that really um, leads you to, to an understanding that there are, there are so many correlated situations that, that many times we tend in the, in the Christian community to compartmentalize mm -hmm. our conversation. And so we've compartmentalized the, the conversation about, um, about birth mm -hmm. and, and about the, you know, the, uh, uh, the abortion conversation. We've compartmentalized the, the, the care of vulnerable children in orphan care, but there are just a whole lot of issues that are, um, that are all, you know, maybe in a professional sense, you would call them comorbid, um, you know, to, the, the, the issue of life. And, and so the unifying thing about, and the unifying theme about this book is it's the name, it's, it's image bearers. It's this idea of the, of the Imago Dei. And uh, how, just talk a little bit about how a right view of, of personhood and people um, really should, should drive the action of our life. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we, if we as Christ followers really saw that every single person is created in the image of God, which is what the Word of God says. And it says it over and over again, sometimes in very profound ways where you can't miss it, and then so many times in very overt ways that you could miss it if you, if you weren't looking for it. But over and over, the theme of the Bible, it's a story about God, and it's a story about Him redeeming His people who were created in His image. And and obviously the story of redemption is that none of us, no matter where we've been, where we've come from, or the sin that we have fallen for daily, none of us are outside of the grace, the love, and the salvation of Christ Jesus. Now we've got to come to an end of ourselves and follow him. So all the story is that, that Jesus doesn't come onto the scene saying, well, here's a certain class of sinners that I'm willing to die for, and here's a certain class of sinners I'm not. He comes and looks for at humanity. We even see that Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he wept mm -hmm. over the sinfulness and the hurt and the pain of Jerusalem. And, and so many times I feel like as, as believers, instead of following our Savior to weep over godlessness, to weep over sin, we've become judges of sin. Now, hear me, and, 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 and I hope that if people have the opportunity to read this book, they'll see that we're, we're not soft-peddling sin. Mm. Sin is a, a great, heinous offense against God, but it should cause us as His image bearers to weep 
not to stand in condemnation. And, and I'm afraid that at times we, we weep for a baby in the womb and we stand in condemnation against the mother. Mm-hmm. We, we weep for kids that are in foster care and we stand in condemnation for the parents that lost their custody of them. We, we stand in condemnation of folks that are struggling with identity issues and, and we, we weep for their families that are having to deal with that as opposed to weeping for all, for, for having this Christ-like concern for all. And, and if we really came to understand and believe God's word where it says that all men are created in the image of God, male and female, he created them, then we would passionately evangelize the world in a different way. Mm. We would passionately seek justice in a different way. We would seek racial reconciliation in a different way. We would look at the LGBTQ issue in a different way. And that's not to soft pedal it. And, and I think, you know, Dr. Rick, even as you were able to read through this several times and <laughs> we were able to go back and forth, you know, one of the things that, that we really wanted to look at is I think so many times we look at all of these issues and we look at them as either black or we look at them as white in our response. They're not black and white. God calls it a sin. God calls this a sin and that a sin, and he gives his grace here and there. But but we get ourselves caught in the extremes of issues. And so, you know, one of the issues that we look at is, is identity and LGBTQ. And so many churches either are going to soft pedal it mm-hmm. and go, well, it is what it is, and we're not going to address it, you know, and we're just going to, in, in a sense, take the marketing pool and say, love wins. Then other churches are saying, hey, you don't even belong in our pews. We're not going to reach out to you. There's anathema that's there. But we've missed really where God wants us to be is in the tension of both of those to say, this is humanity created in my image. They are marred by sin and they need to be redeemed, but they need to be loved by you and introduced to a God that will, yes, hold them accountable, but if they repent, we'll love them with great mercy. And I think if we look at all of these issues like that and have a whole life pro-life where we see this, these are God's image bearers who are caught up in different situations and we're called to show the justice of the kingdom. Uh, and, and even as you, I know you and I talked because there was a point where trying even to finish up the manuscript, yeah. we got caught. I got caught on an immigration issue because you've got folks that, you know, want to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it between the U.S. and Mexico and and just say that these children that are caught at the border and the families that are caught at the border and the folks that are literally trying to flee uh, oppressive situations, that they just need to be treated uh, inhumanely. And, and we, we have to enforce our border. Then you have others that say there's no right to have a border open up the border, let anyone come through. Well, neither of those are really a correct biblical posture. And, and that's where I was wrestling because everyone wants to take one side or the other. And, and really, yes, there, there need to be borders, right? Governments were made, Romans 13, for the protection of people, for, you know, the, even for the, to show the rule of God, that there are borders for reasons, but we also have to say 
uh, at times that that there are reasons we would allow folks to seek political asylum or to get away from oppression. But at the end of the day, government's job is not to do the job of the church. And so church, we need to be the ones at the border that are loving on those that are caught unjustly. We need to be the ones on the border and, and going across our borders to other nations to show the love of Christ in a way that says, hey, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're coming into the U.S. unjustly or justly, right? You were created in the image of God. And so we have a responsibility to show the image of God because you bear the marks of the Imago Dei. Yeah, I think, you know, just as um, one of the conversations that continue to just bubble up over and over and over as you were writing the book and, and as we were kind of negotiating through is, is this idea of um, speaking the truth in love. And, and that where, where we tend to look and in our flesh, kind of where we're drawn to, is to is is to somehow try to find a place in the middle, where where we where we soft pedal the truth a little bit, and where you know we we consider, but but that's not what Christ has called us to. He's called us to be to be truthful, to be just, but he's also called us to be loving, completely, one hundred percent, and both of those. And I, and I think that is a that's a tension we wrestle with every day here in our ministry. And I think one of the reasons that, um, that I lean on you so hard about, um, about writing this book is, is just articulating in, in our world, uh, what does a completely truthful and a, and a completely loving position look like? How does that work out? How, how, you know, practically what kinds of actions are called for and, and who are we in that? And I, and I think, you know, in the in the church, one of the one of the debates that continues, I think, to, to rage around, you know, pro-life issues is is we have there's a camp of, of folks that are um, th- that are that are staunchly pro-life um, that that defend birth. And, and and by the way, we're in that camp, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> like daily. daily. Um, and and that but that that is kind of the the preoccupation the other and i think maybe this is a younger kind of thing as well that there is there's a generation particularly that that's that's coming of age in the church and and leading that that the preoccupying question is um the gospel and so we're talking about everything being gospel centered and 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 the fact is neither of those are those are not polar opposites right um what does it look like for a church to be both wholly pro-life, but also to be a church that says we're, we're completely gospel-centered in the way that we do that. Yeah, well, and I think, I think a lot of that is we have segmented the church way too much, you know, and and I, I'm a big believer, in, and I know we've talked about this as well, that certainly the Lord gifts even individuals with certain giftings, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that he hasn't still given you responsibilities to work in things that maybe you're not as gifted about. To some, he's given to be evangelist. Yep. It doesn't mean that just because I may not have the gift of evangelism, that I'm not responsible to share the gospel with my next door neighbor, that I'm not responsible to speak of the goodness of Christ in an evangelical way. I, I, I may not have just the bubbling gift of being able to do that, but I still have a responsibility to do that. And I feel like we've segmented so much of our church life and everything that we do to say, well, you know what? We're a gospel driven church, or you know what? We're a justice driven church, or you know what? We're, we're a church that's going to stand up for Roe v. Wade, but, but we really don't have the time to care for the kids once they're born. And the truth of the matter is 
the question shouldn't be, how do we do both? The question is, how do we ever get them separated in the first place, right? Because Jesus believed in both proclaiming the kingdom, which is what he did, and discipling his followers to know what that meant. And so he walked alongside of them. But even in our church, right, we, we have churches that are really good at preaching the gospel. You know, I know altar calls aren't that big of a deal anymore, but somehow calling the saints to, to a time of repentance and confession and coming before the Lord. And they're seeing people being baptized and they're seeing people, but they're not a disciples making church. Right. And then you go across the street and there's a discipleship church and they're not calling people to saving faith in Christ, but man, they're equipping the saints in ways that no other church can. How did that ever get separated? It really is the question that we should be asking ourselves, not how do we get, how, why, how, how can we do both of them and work in paradigm? And, you know, in a city that's here in the South that I won't mention, I've heard so many people say that you get saved at this one church. Then when you, you kind of feel like, hey, I want to go a little bit deeper, you go to this next church, you get really excited about getting deeper. And then you go, no, I really want to go deeper. And you go to this next church. And then you, you're at this church and you're growing so deep and you realize we're not sharing our faith with anybody. And you end up back at the first church because you want to see people come. Well, what would it look like if the body of Christ wasn't three different churches, but three churches doing all of it together? Right. And so that's the same thing we've got with being gospel centered, being theologically sound, being doctrinally sound, but yet also showing the justice and the mercy of the kingdom. That's that's what Jesus did. And, and if you look at his ministry, he comes into a new town. He sees someone that's that's blind. He sees someone that's lame. He sees someone that's hurting. He sees someone that's outcast and he reaches out to them. Always he reaches out to them physically. By, by meeting their physical need, by doing justice in their life, right? But then yet coming forth and speaking the words of the kingdom and the gospel. So it's never divorced from each other. I, I even think of the, you know, the lame men and, you know, only one of the, one of the men with leprosy comes back to thank Jesus. And that's the story that we look at. But you think about how he released them of their shame. Mm. Even before only one man comes, who wasn't a Jew, by the way, to thank Jesus for this healing, he releases them from their shame. These are men that would have been outside of the city, not able to get into the synagogue, not able to make it. And he releases them from their shame. Yes, there was a physical reality, but there's also a spiritual reality of doing justice because he says, go to the synagogue. Well, the big thing about going to the synagogue wasn't just show the priest that you're healed. It was you're now allowed to go back into the synagogue. I've released you physically to go back in the synagogue. But then he also preaches the kingdom and the justice and the, it's justice, it's mercy and it's gospel all there together. And so what I hope if any church were to look at this book is to say, how have we let ourselves separate these two mm -hmm. things? And so for churches that only have mercy ministries and they just want to show mercy and show mercy, but, but they're soft peddling the gospel, like you're showing a temporary mercy that's not gonna last forever without the gospel of Christ Jesus. The gospel of Christ Jesus is the greatest mercy and the greatest healing that can ever happen in that person needs mercy. The greatest, uh, the, the greatest way that you can show, uh, you know, even justice and that you can show, uh, you know, just come alongside of somebody and show them dignity is by preaching the gospel while loving them in a merciful way. And for those churches that want to just preach the gospel and, and they think the mercy ministry are liberal or are, are defunct from the gospel, how do you look at the gospel of Christ Jesus which says, I am a dirty, wretched, rotten sinner that deserves judgment, but Christ Jesus came perfect and unblemished and died for me and not have a response, yeah. right? And, yeah. and it's 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 what I say sometimes is this is not just the death row inmate 
that got clemency from the governor and is now free. This is the death row inmate that has been released and saying, you're a model citizen. You never did anything. Like you're free. You're not just free because somebody had mercy. You're now seen as a model citizen. That released person is going to want to go with joy to talk about what's just happened for them. And yet in our churches that we love our doctrine and love our theology, if we're not speaking of the miraculous, marvelous grace, mercy, and justice of the kingdom, and if it's not spilling over into showing the gospel to those that are hurting, to showing the gospel to those who are oppressed, and reaching the gospel, then I guess I'd ask us the question, do we really know the gospel? And to our churches that are only showing mercy, I would want to say, do you realize that apart from the gospel, you're putting band-aids on long-term issues? Right. That's right. We say all the time around here that we we don't want to provide children a more comfortable way to a Christless eternity. That's right. And I think, you know, as I'm as I'm listening to you get get charged up over those answers and, and stuff, I'm I'm just reminded that like these are honestly the kinds of conversations and internal de- deliberations we have around here all the time, um, trying to remind ourselves of why we do what we do and, and trying to, to remain faithful to those things that, you know, that Christ has called us to. And, and I think sometimes people listen to a podcast like this and they go, man, this is a this is a special occasion. No, this is a, this is a pretty typical conversation. Um, and and the the burden that we have in the church to um, to show people through being the hands and feet of Jesus the character of our God, um, so that we then can you know introduce them to the you know to the person of Jesus and and you know that great opportunity. So because I'm, and just not to interrupt yeah, you, Doctor Rick, but you know and and just to <laughs> highlight that point, I mean we are always asking ourselves as a team, you know this is a gospel issue, so are we making the gospel come to bear? in this issue. And then we're also asking ourselves, are we showing the gospel to our neighbors who've never heard it? You know, and, and, and we like to talk about, you know, what St. Francis Assisi said, you know, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. And, and, and we look at that and say, no, you, you can't, You can't show the gospel without speaking words in the same way. You can't just speak words and not show action. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, in the church, we like to look at Galatians and say, well, oh, you know, it has to be faith. And, you know, you can't prove your faith by works. And then we read James, we go, oh, we got to be working all this. And, And it's both of those are in the same Bible inspired by God because they go together. Right. And and it's our faith bears out in works and our works are brought about by faith and and they they work in this great tandem and and we're we're that's why we're asking ourselves questions and and I sometimes adoptive families like why in the world especially our domestic program do they want to be so birth parent centric and centered to some point that they may actually be jeopardizing the opportunity for this baby to be placed mm-hmm. well what we're seeing from both a gospel driven ethic and a mercy driven ethic is we're not just looking at today we're looking at 18 years down the road and realizing we have today a very important opportunity to write an important part of this child's story. And we don't want them looking back 18, 20, 22 years and looking at an organization that said, we're distinctively Christian, we're gospel driven, we're birth mother centric, and we care passionately for vulnerable children. And we ultimately avoided our our purposely missed issues that would be Christ honoring, Christ exalting, just in order to get them into a family. You know, the ends don't justify the means Absolutely. in what we're doing. The gospel justifies what we're doing and showing the gospel justifies what we're doing. And so, yeah, we may sacrifice numbers to be able to put on a great annual report in order to one day be able to look before our father and, and hopefully and prayerfully hear him say, well, good, 
well done, my good and faithful servants, and look around and see a harvest of righteousness because of the faithfulness of people that have come before us and will come after us here at Lifeline. Absolutely. And I, I think it's a, you know, a, a right view of, of who are our clients and who are our partners. And the fact is that we know that, that churches and adoptive families and people that are followers, followers of Jesus are our partners. Um, our clients are birth moms and families that are in need of reconciliation and in need of the gospel and children that are in need of protection and, you know, those kinds of things. And, and it's, it's fun to get to be, um, to, 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 to balance those things and to wrestle through those issues. It, 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 it's, it's gratifying to see the way the Lord's really cut a pathway for us. I, so I'm going to, I'm going to turn a little to, to some more specifics. Cause I, I think one of the things ab about the book is that there is a thread through a good bit of the book that talks about manhood, mm -hmm. um, and, and really kind of in from different, different angles and kind of different respects talking about the, the issue of manhood. And I know that's a, you know, that's something that's really, you know, strong on your heart. Um, and I'm just going to ask you, like, do, do you believe there's a crisis of manhood in the church? So is that a rhetorical question, Dr. Rick? Because you already know the answer that I I'm, think I'm of I'm teeing that. you up, brother. I'm but, trying. Well, first of all, you know, we look at something like pro-life and pro-birth, and we feel like the man's duty in that, if I'm just honest, is go to Washington, go to your state government, and, and try to pass laws, right? And and it even gets down to it's a woman's right to choose or it's a woman's reproductive health. And I think that's interesting. Notice that the pro-abortion lobby never uses the word abortion. Right. It's always women reproductive health. And so we've labeled this as uh, a woman's issue. Well, first and foremost, and you know this as well, Dr. Rick, a woman doesn't just become pregnant. You know, there's only one immaculate conception, and that was Mary, and right. that was the Savior, right? right? There is a, a man that is involved in any birth, right. that any conception, there is a man. And that there are women that we work with, and you know, hundreds and hundreds of women that we work with, and there is no man in sight? When you know he had an act to that and he is abandoning her? Yes, there is an issue, first and foremost in our society, that men are, are refusing to be men. And as a culture, as a culture, and I'm first talking about outside of the church, mm -hmm. the culture is basically saying it is un, it, 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 it's not right to be manly. There's something wrong with manhood. There's something wrong with headship. There's something wrong with masculinity. And, and we've, we've almost targeted it. I mean, and, and I could go on for hours and with your PhD in education, you know this as well, even our educational systems yeah. very much cope to try to get that masculinity out of men. Little boys were not meant to sit in desk for eight hours a day and stare at a whiteboard. <laughs> and some of them prove it every and day. And some of them prove it every day. And, and I believe that ADHD and ADD, while some of that is true, I believe it's misdiagnosed to young boys because they were never meant to sit there and act like little soldiers looking at a teacher and writing papers. They were meant to explore. They were meant to get their hands dirty. And we've lost this art of what it is to be a man. Now, get, don't get me wrong, and you know my heart on this, we desperately need the feminine too, Absolutely. because they're both two sides of a coin that God created to bring out this majestic creation that he made. He didn't, if he just, if, if, if man alone would have been satisfying, right? In Genesis chapter one, everything is good. Mm -hmm. And then you get to Genesis chapter two. And the first time that you see it says it's not good is that it was not good for man to be alone. And if it was only supposed to be masculinity, then there would have been another man created. Instead, it is a woman and man looks at her and goes, wow, right. 
This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the two were together as right. one flesh and there became the, the, the procreation of humanity right there. Man, fully man, woman, fully woman, both made in the image of God. And the culture has said that this, that this, the, the characteristics of womanhood are those to be praised and the characteristics of manhood are those to be denied. And unfortunately, our church is just bought right into that. Yeah. And with our programs, we cater to children and we cater to women. Mm-hmm. We're not discipling men. We're not coming alongside of men. But you know who is discipling men? The internet is discipling men. Sexual trafficking is discipling men. Pornography is discipling men. We have men that are more captured by a device in their pocket than they are their families. And, and even as we're recording this podcast, just yesterday, I had a dear brother of mine in tears telling me about another dear brother who has just left his family for another woman. Mm. You know, and this was a man that we would have never guessed, never guessed, never had seen it coming. And, and at the end of the day, there is a fight for the heart of men. And as a church, we have got to be, we've got to be reaching out to the men. If you reach the heart of men, and if men really are the leaders and, and we're teaching them to be leaders and we're going back to the Bible, which is there to lead their families, you're not going to have to worry about ministering to, to women and children. The men will go around and minister to the women and the children. We have to reach the men. And, and we make all of these things about a, a, a woman and a man's issue. I, there's a school in town. Again, I won't name it, but they expel young women who get pregnant. And yet the young men who got them pregnant continued to go to school there. Right. And they even, and you would say, right. well, they don't know. No, they know. And yet those young men yeah. are never being expelled. They're allowed to graduate from that school. Yeah. That's an atrocity. Right. And it's a crisis of manhood. And it's a crisis of manhood. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to saying, well, that's why that's all the bad things about men. This is, this is us, Christ, not coming alongside that young man and saying, you've made, it, you've made a decision and you have to stand by your decision. Every decision has a good, positive consequence and a negative consequence. Yeah. And you have to stand by those consequences and you have to fight through those consequences and you have to learn to become a man. And that is the thing we need within the church to teach men how to be men, how to be godly men. We need to stop acting like the only way to be a good man is to have feminine characteristics. But to be a good man is a masculine characteristic, but that those masculine characteristics need to be pointed in the right direction. And that's to the gospel of Christ Jesus, the passion of Christ Jesus, the 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 the, the ways of making the gospel known and the ways of protecting our families, loving our families. And, and you and I know this as well. Men were created to be pursuers. Right. They were they're were created to be hunters and gatherers. Right. And when we take that out of a man, he's lost his purpose. And that's why men have become intoxicated with drink and intoxicated with pleasures and intoxicated with electronic devices and intoxicated with sport because we've taken away the pursuit and the pursuit was to be able to pursue the Lord, to be able to pursue your family, to be able to lead and I mean, you know, I could go into so many different ways. I'm just trying to hit it. And he does in the book. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the thing. I think, you know, just introducing this is the idea that that really there's several chapters here where where it's unpacked. But but the but the idea here is not just this sort of, you know, ham fisted 
um, patriarchal kind of, you know, kind of understanding of manhood. It's a, it's a, it's a manhood that, that benefits womanhood. Like it, right. it's a complimentary respecting of the image of God in both men and women. And, and I think most of the controversies that we see going on around us right now, even in the church mm-hmm. are, are controversies that are that are born of sin and they're born of our excesses in in one you know direction or the other and not really respecting the full image of God in you know the lives of people. Well, I'm I'm going to hit you with one more one more thing before um, before we wrap up today and and that is a, a, again a, a bit of a shift. But um, and there's so many things we could talk about um, and and I encourage you to go pick up image bearers and to um, to, to look at the entire book because it's just chock full of very practical guidance. But one of the things we've talked about a lot is, is the idea that we may be standing on the precipice of, of seeing the, the end of legal abortion in America. Um, that, that I think for the first time in our lifetimes, we're, um, you know, we, we see the, you know, all of the forces marshalling that there may be something dramatic that happens, um, in our country. Um, Man, I just want you to talk about that for a minute because, um, you know, are we ready? Are we are we prepared as a church? We've we've prayed for and we've longed for and we've worked for this, but you know now and and you know one of my favorite sayings like I I fear that we're about to be a dog that caught a car, mm-hmm. um, and and so I I just love for you to 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 talk to our audience a little bit about um, what must the church do now to be ready, and that's. You know, the first three chapters of this book really do address, hey, here's the good news of where we're going on abortion. Yeah, here's some bad news, but here's some good news. And, you know, one of the things that the millennials get a bad rap, but they're the most pro-life yep. generation that has been born. And so you're talking about the the generation that's coming of age and in the workforce and starting to influence public policy is one of the most pro-life generations. And and a lot of that is the good of technology, mm-hmm. right? They're seeing ultrasounds. They're seeing mm-hmm. a child that's eight weeks old putting its thumb in its mouth. And they're seeing the heartbeat and they're seeing, you know, lungs breathing. And, and it's hard. It's very hard for them to look and say, nope, that's not a life. Yeah. And so they're recognizing that that's a life. Where they need the older generations is they believe it but they don't believe yet that that should shape what other people believe. It's these personal beliefs. But you have, for for the most part, the the most pro-life generation that you've ever had in the last several years. Second of all, you have public policy because at some point, just like we said before, pro-abortion advocates, pro-choice, right? They won't say the word abortion. Right. And they're saying women's reproductive health. Why? Because abortion means to abort, to stop, right? To stop what? To stop a life. And they have to realize to say abort is to stop a life. Mm -hmm. And you see that it's a slippery, slippery slope. You know, Bill Clinton introduced the the saying that, that abortion should be, it should be safe, it should be legal, and it should be rare. His wife runs what some... 16 years later for presidency. And she says it needs to be legal and it needs to be safe. No longer is the word rare in there. And so you see the pro-choice, pro-abortion lobby. It's getting, their their talking points are getting smaller and smaller. They're getting more polarized. And in the other way, the rest of the book is saying, we could be at the precipice for the first time in our lives of truly seeing Roe v. Wade backed away. But are we ready? 
And not are we just ready to have the party and throw the party of the day that it happens outside the Supreme Court, but are we ready to say, what does this mean now? And that's really what the other nine chapters is about is, okay, if this happens and we have the party and we celebrate and the streamers are outside the the Supreme Court because we, we back out one of the most bloody rulings that's ever been made in our country. What are we going to do and how are we going to live that out and how are we going to have men ready to stand up for their actions and how are we going to love the single mom in front of us? Because if if the statistics are right about how many kids are aborted every year, we're going to have a whole lot more single moms. And so what are we going to do with that? And are we ready for that? And what are we going to do with the children that these moms realize, I can't take care of these kids. Are we ready to adopt those kids? Are we ready to love on those kids? Are we even ready to help a mom by raising her child with her until she can get on her feet? Are we willing to think outside the box and say, hey, now it's time to really defend life and life that would have been aborted that now has the opportunity to live? Are our churches gonna be a bastion again for the gospel where we're preaching the gospel to our neighbors, where we're preaching the gospel to these women, where we're preaching the gospel to the men to have them step up? Are we finally gonna start talking about abstinence? Are we gonna finally start talking about what it looks like to love our brown, our tan, our yellow, our white, our red brothers and sisters all equally, right? And and one of the things, even talking about abortion, that is just spellbounding, the Gutmeyer Institute, which is the, the statistical arm of, of Planned Parenthood, readily admitted that in 2008, more black children in the United States were aborted than African-Americans passed away in the entire year. Yep. So of all of the, the deaths to African-Americans in 2008, more died through abortion than any other cause. Old age, heart abuse, cancer, abortion. And, And so are we going to stand up for life, no matter the shade, no matter the culture, no matter the background, because it's made in the image of God. And so how are we going to do that? We're, we're looking at a crisis of belief. And, and that's one of the reasons you're right. We talk so much about manhood. I totally believe, and I know that you you agree, that this LGBTQ issue is a lot because we've, we've, we've said that manhood is wrong, right? It's, it's no longer right to be manly. And because of that, we have this gender confusion. But this gender confusion is even starting to break down just from reason. You know, one of the things that's killing the gender confusion right now is sports, right? right? You have traditionally LGBTQ activists and feminists who don't want a transgendered man on their women's sports team. Mm -hmm. And so they're going, how are we going to deal with this? And here's the deal. We can't just watch along on the sidelines and pretend that this doesn't pertain to us. Right. We have to aggressively go in with truth and with love and love our LGBTQ neighbors, but also tell them the truth of the gospel. And there, there are so many more issues. Um, you know, the, the, the question of, of how, in we, how in our churches do we minister to people with special needs and people with, um, you know, with grave illnesses and those sorts of things, the genocide of, of abortion, if, if that ends, um, then, then we're going to, we're going to, we're going to reap the harvest of, of, of children that we're going to need to care for in, in special ways. And that's going to call upon us to, you know, to need to stretch. And all of that is discussed in image bearers. And so I want to, I want to commend, um, to the folks that are, that are out there that are listening to the Defender podcast. You listen to Herbie, um, faithfully week in and week out. Um, I want you to go read 
image bearers. Pick this book up. It'll be available on Amazon. It'll be available in um, in in major outlets. Um, it'll be available through Lifeline's website. And so we are we are looking at um, at a finished book. We have a have a finished copy, and uh, it's actually sitting on the desk in front of us right now, even as we're talking. And uh, and and so we anticipate just within um, within mere days the the release at um, at the beginning of December. And so we're just Herbie. Thanks for um, for sitting down and uh, bearing with me being the interviewer. Um, and uh, and and brother, I'm I'm excited about um, what the Lord has produced through you and the challenge that it is to the church. Um, and and I pray that um, that the Lord will will use this tool to be something um, to to change our churches and and ultimately to to change our world um, for Christ. And uh, so thanks for thanks for the opportunity to sit down. Absolutely anytime, Dr. Well, thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.